Thank you for listening to the Restoration City Church Podcast. For more information about our church or to support us financially, please visit rcc.church. Um, if you're new, welcome. My name's John. I have the privilege of serving as the pastor here. Uh, we are in the middle of a series where we are walking through uh, the book of 1 Corinthians, just taking it section by section and trying to follow uh, the argument that um, the Apostle Paul is making and really sort of the pastoral counsel that he is offering to uh, the Corinthian church. Um, start with a disclaimer that obviously, given the text, I'm going to uh, try to apply it very specifically to marriage, but I think one of the things that you will see very quickly is that um, this is actually applicable to the entirety of the Christian life. Um, everything we're going to be talking about um, is not just a- applicable for um, making marriage work, um, but really, in some ways, like the essence of what it means to follow Jesus. So even if you are here as a single person, you're here as a non-Christian, you are going to be able to take a lot away from this. We're going to do all of that in a minute, but before we kind of dive into the heart of the sermon, quick um, congregational life update. Um, Some of you probably had heard that our plan this morning uh, was to ordain John Michael, who has been serving on our staff team for, um, at this point, almost three years, has done a fantastic uh, job, and he and I have been moving through a process that was going to culminate with the elders laying hands on him and ordaining him as a pastor in our church. So if you know that and then you notice, like, wait a minute, John Michael's not even here, um, it could beg the question of, like, did something go tragically wrong at the end or what happened? And I promise you, um, nothing went tragically wrong. Um, what happened is that their second child was born um, over the weekend about four weeks early, um, little Piper Sky showed up on Friday morning. So um, we felt like that was sufficient reason for John Michael not to be here um, this morning or next week. And he and Catherine are um, just overwhelmed with joy. Um, Catherine is doing great. Piper is totally uh, healthy. And honestly, I forgot to ask about John Michael. But um, I assume... (laughs) Seems good. Last time I talked to him, sleep deprived, just get a cup of coffee, you'll be fine. Um, But let's take a minute. Let's pray for them, and then we're going to dive into God's Word together. Father, I just really want to say thank you for uh, the gift of this beautiful little girl, God. Thank you for uh, the joy that she has already brought to her parents, God. Thank you for the grace that you have shown John Michael and Catherine, even in causing this delivery to go well. Lord, we just ask that you would draw near to them in these early days, in these early weeks, God. Would you give them a strength that comes um, from beyond themselves? Give them a strength that comes from you, Lord Jesus. Enable them uh, to savor this, and I pray, God, that they would feel this sense of a church community who loves them, who is for them, and who is celebrating with them. So God, even as I ask that you would draw near to John Michael and Catherine, I ask that you would do the same here in this place this morning, that you would meet each and every single one of us, and that you would teach us through your word. And I pray this in Jesus' name. 
Amen. Well, like, like I said, um, the topic for today is clearly marriage, given the text that's in front of us. And really, my goal is to give you what you might consider like a theological vision for a thriving marriage, but it's really a theological vision to thrive in any relationship and really a theological vision to thrive in your relationship with Jesus. But because we're talking about marriage, um, I'm going to be willing to use Laura and I as the illustration frequently, um, including um, talking about some of the challenges that we have encountered over the years. Um, But we're going to start by talking about one of the things that we actually got right, and that is not at all to make us the hero of the story because we got it right totally by accident. But Laura and I got engaged back in December of 2009 um, in the middle of an absolutely blinding whiteout snowstorm that totally decimated all of my plans for a beautiful romantic engagement. Like I was going to propose in front of the Christmas tree and then we were going to head out to dinner. It was going to be epic and the restaurant was closed. Not only was that restaurant closed, but like every restaurant in D.C., was closed. We couldn't even go to Wendy's. So we got engaged, had champagne, and then ate pita chips and hummus because that was all that was available in my bachelor little condo at the point and called our friends and were like, woohoo, we are engaged and now we have to go shovel the driveway. So um, it was this pretty awesome beginning. Um, I'd been a pastor for a while. I'd done enough weddings to know that um, short engagements are good engagements. Nobody actually enjoys being engaged. I'm sorry if you are engaged. The finish line is coming and soon, I hope. Um, But I was like, man, let's just do this fast. Like, you know, the sooner um, that we really get this show started, the better. So we decided we're like, yeah, we can do this in six months. We will go ahead and get married in June of 2010. Everything was going great. Um, And then in January of 2010, if you remember, there was a massive, massive earthquake in Haiti. And at the time, Laura and I were both serving in a college ministry that had been really engaged with one particular community in Haiti for a number of years. In fact, we actually had a team of college students that was in Haiti when the earthquake hit. And um, I wasn't on that trip. Uh, None of our more senior staff were on that trip. They were being led by a 23-year-old resident at the time and got to coach him through how we were going to get the kids out and back home. Um, But there was this instantaneous desire on the part of the students we were leading to go back. Um, And that wasn't going back as sort of meddlesome outsiders that were going to try to come and do good. It was like, no, we have really deep roots in this community, and we can do some things to move things forward. So Laura and I decided in the midst of being engaged, in the midst of six months to pull off a wedding, to go lead a one-week mission trip in Haiti. Um, And it just felt obvious. We're like, yep, we're doing it. Let's go. Um, So we went to a country where drinkable, potable water was an extraordinarily um, short supply. Um, We always stayed at what was a former UN compound, but at this point it had been turned into a hospital and a relief center. So we slept on the ground. We camped out by the Caribbean, which was not half bad, to be honest with you, but um, camped out and spent a week trying to dig out and trying to help families get back on their feet and um, literally going to bed at night, um, listening to the sounds of what was a makeshift field hospital as they were 
operating and delivering babies and all of that kind of stuff. And you could imagine, if you do something like that right in the middle of your engagement, how much that changed our perspective on absolutely everything that goes into uh, planning a wedding, right? Like, I think Laura bought her wedding dress in like, one day, maybe it was like one store. She was like, I want my mom there, <laughs> my grandmother, my best friend. Here we go. Boom. Done. It's white. It fits. Boom. Moving on. Like she just didn't, she was like, we're good. I like, I have seen what the devastation in Haiti looks like and I just can't get too worked up about it. Like we still had little skirmishes. Don't get me wrong. Like we still had to work through the whole wedding cake scenario. Um, I remember being with the cake lady and she's like, now have you guys given any thought to what you want? And Laura's like, well, yeah, we definitely want carrot cake, right, babe? And I was like, only if you want me to throw up. Like what is wrong with carrot? Oh my goodness. Why would you take a perfectly good cake and ruin it by sticking carrots and raisins in the middle. It's just wrong. That's not how God designs the world to work. Like, I have nothing against carrots. I have nothing against raisins. But I also don't put frosting on my salad. So keep your carrots out of my cake. Like, it's just not. So we had our little, like, moments where we were like, what? No way. Um, and we ultimately worked that one through. By the way, if you are in the middle of planning wedding, here's what you need to know. Here's how you make all of life help. Um, all week I was like, oh, right, I know we didn't have carrot cake because I did have a little bit of a temper tantrum, but I can't remember what we had. And all week I kept looking for the moment to ask Laura, like, hey, by the way, what did we have? Right, because you want to pick your moment because that could seem like an insensitive question. Like that could turn into a little bit of a thing um, uh, that you don't remember what we had for our wedding. And it was a really busy week, and we never had the chance to have that moment. So in the second song of worship this morning, I'm over there. I'm like, by the way, what did we have for our wedding cake? And Laura's like, I don't know. It was like lemon strawberry, right? I was like, I'm sure. Sounds good to me. So you know what? All of these little things that we get stressed out about 13 some odd years later, you're not even going to remember half of them. Um, but we were just able to keep things in a different perspective. And believe it or not, um, that is really what Paul is encouraging the Corinthians to do in this passage. He's saying, hey guys, one of the things that you need to do in order to thrive in marriage is to keep your relationship in the proper perspective. And he doesn't mean that he is trying to downplay the significance of marriage because he has been on this campaign through all of chapter 7 to help the Corinthians see the full significance and the full beauty of marriage, yet at the same time, he has also been trying to balance that by fighting against so much of the cultural current of the day that said, look, you are supposed to get married, and if you don't get married, there's got to be something wrong with you. So he is trying to lift up this beautiful vision of marriage, yet trying to encourage those who are single, those who are widowed, those who are divorced, that, hey, you're not a second-class citizen in the kingdom of God, that Jesus loves Loves you, and in fact, there's advantages to your situation, but he's been developing this argument. But today, he wants to say, yes, marriage is this beautiful display of the gospel. You don't need to be married to have a vibrant relationship with God, but if you are married, if you want to make your marriage work, 
you need to start to see it through both a missional and an eternal perspective. And here's what I mean by that. When Laura and I are working together to accomplish something bigger than ourselves, we tend to do pretty well as a couple, right? Ironically, it's when we lose sight of the bigger picture things that God has called us to in life, and we get really self-focused, and we kind of turn inward, that's actually when we probably struggle the most, right? That when marriage becomes sort of self-absorbed, when marriage starts to collapse on itself, when marriage just becomes internally focused, it's really easy to get nitpicky and fault-finding and just sort of settle into this period of relational stagnation. But when you're able to keep your marriage or your life outwardly focused, where you're focused on what God's doing in the world and how you participate in what God is doing in the world, when you're able to keep yourself focused on the fact that everything in this world is temporary and there is an eternity to come that eye has not seen and ear has not heard what God has in store for those who love him, when you're able to keep that perspective, it just somehow enhances your ability to navigate the carrot cake bumps in the road that we all kind of face. It makes sense. I mean, it certainly makes sense when you tell the story about Haiti, and you're like, yeah, I totally get how that would simplify wedding planning and streamline the whole thing. But it's also really counterintuitive, and it's really different from how a lot of us tend to live. Because the trap that we fall into is thinking like, wait a minute, I, I, I get it that God has called us to be a part of His mission and make a difference in the world around us, and that is so beautiful. But look, man, we're just drowning right now. Like, we're trying to keep up with two jobs and mortgage payments and extended families and for many of us in the room, kids, and it's like, look, our plate is so full already that if you stand up there for 30-some-odd minutes telling us that the greatest thing we can do for our marriage is to add yet one more thing into the mix, I'm going to lose it because we don't have space for one more thing. We don't even have enough space for what we're after right now. We can't even keep our head above water, so don't you dare try to add something onto the plate. And I will acknowledge from the beginning, sometimes the way we have to approach this is by taking something off the plate so that we can add the right things back on. But there is also a way of saying we're called to embrace the paradoxical realities of the gospel. That somehow, when we seek first the kingdom of God and His righteousness, He really does have a tendency of fulfilling that promise to show us that all these other things will be added to you. Right? That when we are willing to live for something bigger than ourselves, somehow the Spirit of God just helps us navigate homework and soccer practice and baseball and extra shifts and unexpected work trips. Right? That somehow when we're able to keep that eternal perspective, we just find ourselves having less and less conflict. Right? But most of us live our life thinking, no, no, I definitely want to focus on the things of eternity. I just have to figure out how to like, successfully navigate Tuesday. Right? And like, once we get through Tuesday, once we get good at navigating Tuesday, we can think about eternity. But why in the world would I be thinking about eternity when I don't even know how to do Tuesday right now? Again, it's this paradoxical reality of the gospel that when we 
are willing to get outside of ourselves, we find life, and we find life that is truly life indeed. So, a thriving marriage keeps a missional and an eternal perspective. It's that simple. That's what I'm trying to communicate today. But I want you to see where that comes from in Paul's argument, and I want you to be able to see the nuances of what he's doing in this text, because this is another one that would raise a number of questions. So, let's just start working through it verse by verse. Verse 25, now, about virgins. He's using a somewhat technical term here. Um, Some of your translations are going to say betrothed. He is talking specifically to those who are currently engaged to be married, uh, but have not yet been married. Um, The reason that it's going to seem like he is talking more to women than to men is because he is just sort of acknowledging the cultural reality of life in Corinth of life in Greece, where the assumption would be that young Corinthian males would become sexually active like right after puberty. That's why there was such a thriving brothel culture, um, often that involved victimizing household slaves. But the idea was like, sure, you can go ahead and apply this to engaged men and women. There just aren't a whole lot of virgin males rolling around Corinth. So he's going to talk more about Um, young women here in in the way he approaches this. And he says to these engaged couples, to these engaged women, I have no command from the Lord. We saw him do this a couple of weeks ago. This is where Paul is saying, hey, if you read through all of the Gospels and you look at all of the teaching of Jesus, you will realize that Jesus never says a single thing about how you know that he or she is the right one and how you know when it's time to get married. There's actually something beautiful that God seems to believe that we are going to have the ability to make that choice to discern that under the leadership of the Holy Spirit and in community, right? That God is saying like, hey, you're going to figure that out. Jesus offers us many thoughts about what a healthy marriage looks like. Jesus offers us many thoughts of what it looks like to become a loving person, but he doesn't do anything that is even remotely close to being like, you know, a Reddit advice column on how do you know he's the one or something like that. So Paul's like, look, I can't go back to the Sermon on the Mount and give you a grid that's going to enable you to figure out if he's the right one or she's the right one and whether you guys should get married. You're going to work that through on your own. But he does have an opinion as one who by the Lord's mercy is faithful. So we assume that because all Scripture is inspired by God, that this opinion is sort of sanctioned by the Spirit of God. It's endorsed by the Spirit of God. But Paul's like, look, I can't quote Jesus on this one, so let me just be Uncle Paul for a minute. Let me just tell you a little something about how I think about marriage and some of what you are confronting right now in Corinth, because this is going to be very, very specific to what's going on in Corinth. Um, Starting in chapter 7, Paul turns a corner in this letter, right? Chapters 1 through 6, it's almost like his time. He just addresses some things to the Corinthian church that have been on his heart, on his mind. But starting in chapter 7, he is now answering questions that they have sent to him 
previously, right? It's very clear that they have sent some sort of communication to him where they have a number of issues that they want Paul to speak to. And this is one of the places where he is taking up one of their questions. The question that they were wrestling with, with these engaged couples was, hey, should we even be going through with these marriages, right? Because there was a faction in Corinth that had a very negative view of sex and sexuality that somehow it was this unspiritual, dirty, avoid-at-all-cost kind of things, and they were beginning to develop this ethic that said, look, if you want to truly love God, if you want to be pure in heart, you remain a virgin all of your life. Paul spends a lot of chapters seven, fighting back against that and being like, no, God is the one who gives you sexual desire, and you're going to fulfill that within marriage, and marriage is a good thing, and go for it, and, you know, be fruitful and multiply. Um, He says it a number of different ways, but the question they were asking is like, hey, should we be going through with our marriages, or should we be calling the whole thing off. And Paul wants to speak to that very directly. Now, they were asking that question not just because of a flawed sexual ethic that was starting to weave its way into the church, but they were asking it for very specific reasons. Verse 26, because of the present distress, right? Sometimes we forget when we read Scripture. This is a real letter written by a real pastor to a real group of people who were trying to live out their faith in the real world. So they were trying to figure out the overall value of marriage, but they were also looking at what Paul refers to as the present distress. And historians will tell us that at this time, shortly after Paul left Corinth and is sending a letter back to them, there was a massive famine in the region around Corinth, right? And that's not Bible, that's just history that we get from extra biblical sources. So, Corinth, absolutely cosmopolitan city, absolutely pretty wealthy kind of place, absolutely valued education and wisdom, yet at this point is plagued by a famine. And it's part of the reason that in 1 Corinthians 11, we see that many were becoming sick and were dying in the church. There wasn't enough food to eat. And people were asking, hey, given the fact that things are such a mess in our city right now, should we be going forward with things like weddings or should we be putting the whole thing on hold, right? It's kind of a question that makes sense, right? Sociologists would tell us um, that marriage rates declined significantly during the Great Depression, right? And they stayed relatively low all the way through the Second World War, and then no surprise, right after the war hit an all-time historic high and entered the baby boomers, right? Um, That when things get really difficult, people tend to stay single longer. And Paul's just kind of speaking into that reality. He's speaking into the fact um, that the city is in crisis. And, and what he says is actually helpful, even though it seems really frustrating and sort of nonspecific. Here, here's where he goes in verse 27. He says, are you bound to 
a wife, that, by the way, um, the word he uses in Greek there would have no negative um, connotation whatsoever. You read that in the English, and you're like, are you bound to a wife? feel like I haven't seen that one on an anniversary card. Like, hey, hey, babe, 14 years, bound to you, you know, living the dream. Like, no, that, there's no negative connotation in the original language. Are you bound to a wife? Don't seek to be released. Are you released from a wife? Again, he's specific language. He's probably talking to uh, widowers at that point and maybe to those who have been divorced. Are you, are you released from a wife? Don't seek a wife. However, if you do get married, you have not sinned. And if a virgin marries, she hasn't sinned. But such people will have trouble in this life, and I am trying to spare you. What Paul is saying is like, hey, are you married? You should go ahead and stay that way, right? You're no longer married. You don't have to get married um, unless you really want to. Like, you really want to get married? fine, go ahead and do it. Like, you know, go ahead. There's nothing wrong. There is this freedom there. This passage drives people crazy when they want Scripture to spell everything out and provide precise guidance. Sometimes the most helpful thing that Scripture does is say, look, there's a couple of different options. You should definitely pick the one that seems to work best for you. Right? So y'all are super stoked to get married and you're like, I understand there's a famine, but we've got enough food and we've already ordered the decorations and Etsy's given us vision for what this thing is going to look like. And I can't imagine living my life without him and blah, blah, blah. You want to get married? Go for it. Nothing wrong with that. Oh, you want to put the whole thing on hold? That's fine. Because that, you're not a second-class citizen in the kingdom of heaven. It's not like marriage is some sort of like, you know, completing a deficiency, righting a wrong, something like that. So like, you want to call the whole thing? Fine. You're fine. Right? You think about getting remarried in the Lord? Okay. You think about staying single? Okay. There's a freedom here where Paul's like, look, you're going to have to discern these things in community. Almost a little bit of truth in advertising, though. Um, Paul's like, look, I mean, you know, marriage isn't always easy. Um, and every once in a while, it's going to be hard. And there probably is this sense where your life would be easier if you're single, but also you're going to give up some stuff. So, you know, again, do kind of whatever you want. That frustrates us, but it should free us a lot. It should free us a lot to say, man, we need to discern God's plan for us. But I want to go back to the overall point for today. This is less of a red light, green light, should you get married and it's much more of saying like, hey, you know what really matters? Whether you get married or not, what really matters is that you live your life in such a way that you are using the gifts and the skills and the talent and the ability and the resources that God has given you, that you are using all of that to meet the present distress of the world, right? That we are not seeking refuge from the world in the church. We are not seeking refuge from the world in our marriages. We are not seeking refuge from the world in our friend groups, that in whatever context we find ourselves, we're asking the question, how does God want to use me to address the pain and suffering of our world. So the issue that's confronting us today is not a famine that is settled in over Washington, D.C., but there are any one of a number of issues. 
Some of you are wired to play on a geopolitical stage and you're so acutely aware of the war in Ukraine and the conflict in the Middle East and Israel and Hamas and what's going on over there right now. Some of you think about the world in terms of inflation and what can you do to help make daily life more affordable for people. Some of you think about the chaos of the real estate market. Some of you think about an education system that is by almost all measures in complete and total crisis. Some of you think more close to home and think about broken marriages and fractured families in your neighborhood, in your apartment building. Some of you have a vision for the Chirilagua neighborhood right across the road. Say, wait a minute, I have the ability to help welcome immigrant families into D.C. and knit them into the fabric of our community and do things like teach English and walk people through an interview process and mentor middle schoolers. When we engage with that, whether you're single or married, that's when you come alive. Not when you say, man, I'll deal with that at some point in life, but for right now, I got to be focused a little bit closer to home. So here's the question for you. How do you think God intends to use you in the coming of his kingdom here on earth. Jesus was the one who told us to pray, let it be on earth as it is in heaven. What's the contribution that you make to becoming the answer to that prayer? How did God design you? How did God wire you to be a part of the coming of the kingdom of heaven? How did God design and wire you to participate in his mission? And then you run after that sucker with everything you've got. Single, dating, engaged, married, divorced, you name it. Any scenario you can come up with, that's the question. Now, I will say married couples, one of the most helpful exercises you could go through and I hope it is a deeply, deeply joyful exercise for you, is to ask the question, why God joined the two of you together to pursue his mission as a team? Because that's been what part of what Paul is arguing all throughout chapter 7, that it's God who joins husband and wife together Jesus does say in his gospels what God has joined together, let no man separate, but that God brought the two of you together if you're married. He did it. You're like, well, he used this online app. Okay, cool. But he did it. Well, he used this mutual friend in the kickball league. Okay, fine, but he did it. God brought the two of you together. And yeah, he did it so that you could become a source of joy and relational connection in each other's lives. And yeah, he did it so you could manage a household together and maybe raise up a couple of kids, but he also did it with something specific in mind for you as a married couple. Something specific that he intends to bring to life through you. All right, wouldn't it be fun to sit down and say, wait a minute, let's just talk about our experiences, our personalities, our passions, our desires, our strengths, our weaknesses, our skills, and ask the question, what's God's vision for your marriage? 
right? It's, it's bigger than just figuring out how to take out the trash, get the kids to go to bed, and where are you going for Thanksgiving, right? Those are important, and Laura and I can have conflict over all of them, right? But when all we do is sit around and argue about Thanksgiving and this and that, and we're here, rah, 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 nothing good happens. But when we keep our eyes on, wait a minute, what is God doing through our family? Man, things just start to work a little bit better. Right, that's sort of a preamble towards this idea of living with an eternal perspective, because that's really what Paul wants to get to. Verse 29 through 31, this is what I mean, right? So helpful. You're like, oh, thank you, Paul. Thank you for just, you've been doing a lot of like, get married, don't, eh, whatever. Here's what I mean. The time is limited. Everything in this world is temporary. Everything in this world is on its way to a new and different world, right? So from now on, those who have wives should be as though they had none, right? Those who weep as though they did not weep. Those who rejoice as though they did not rejoice. Those who buy as though they didn't own anything. And those who use the world as though they did not make full use of it. For this world in its current form is passing away, um, right? It feels so encouraging when Paul's like, here's what I mean. Then you read the next couple verses and you're like, that is literally no help at all. Like, thanks for clearing that up, Paul. Those who are married should live as though they are not married. So what does that mean? Like, I just move into like the man cave in the basement and I'm like, actually, babe, I've heard from Paul. I'll just be living a bachelor life in the basement. Good luck with the kid. I mean, like, what does that mean? It doesn't, <laughs> Laura's like, please make it clear. It does not mean that. Um, it does not mean that at all, right? What he is trying to convey in all of these different ways is that we do not need to hold tightly to the things of this life that we can allow ourselves to hold loosely to the things in this life, knowing that eternity is right around the corner. So are you married? Still make it the driving passion of your life to advance the kingdom of God the same way that, Lord willing, it was when you were single and didn't have to navigate two schedules and kids and soccer practice and all of that. He's saying don't lose sight of the vision that God wants to use you. That's what he means when he talks about marriage, right? He's saying live with a passion for the glory of God. Are you weeping? Some of us are here this morning, and we're in a season of weeping. The Bible was so clear. Allow yourself to grieve, to mourn, to lament. But also, blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. And if you're in a season of weeping, you have to know that in the book of Revelation, it promises that at the end of time, God himself will wipe every tear from your eye. So you can grieve and cry and lament right now, but one day you're going to feel the thumb of the Almighty wiping the tear from your eye and saying, welcome to the joy of the kingdom of heaven. You crushing it in life right now? You're rejoicing? Man, just life couldn't be going better? Well, calm down because this too shall pass. Right? You're not taking any of it with you. And what really matters is not what you've achieved, but who you're becoming. Right? This is David Brooks and the distinction between resume virtues and eulogy virtues. Right? Sometimes you realize you can climb every ladder that's out there and still have an empty soul. And maybe the answer is to be a little less impressed with how much we're crushing it and a little more focused on whether or not we're becoming the kind of person that we wanted to be. 
And just to end, whatever way you're using the things of the world to numb, distract, medicate, or satisfy the longing of your soul, just stop. Architect a life where Jesus is central. That's what it means to live with an eternal perspective. That's what he's, he's inviting the Corinthians to do. He's saying, look, you're going to have careers and kids' schedules and fall festivals and Halloween, and you've got to clean the house and the bathrooms and all the things. Like, it's part of life. But going back to marriage, what would it look like if you decided to architect your marriage and your life in such a way that it made it clear to yourselves and to anybody who got to know you casually that Jesus was central to your life? What changes would that bring? What would you take off of the plate to make space for things like praying together? What would you have to move around to say like, man, we are going to come to church and worship together as a family as often as possible. What would you need to do to be in community together? What would it look like to build a marriage where you don't just pay lip service to this idea that Jesus is central, but you experience it each and every single day? And like I said at the beginning, all of these things apply to every single one of us regardless of relationship status. You want to know what it means to be a follower of Jesus? It means to architect your life where he is central. It means to live in such a way where John 15, this idea of a vine and branches starts to make some sense where you're like, man, I'm drawing life from God himself. And it means to ask the question over and over again, Lord Jesus, what do you want to do through my life today? Now, I'm not naive enough to say that this idea of a missional and an eternal perspective is a one-size-fits-all, cure-all for anything that you're confronting in your marriage. Like, there's a lot of work to do to make marriage healthy and vibrant, Read books, go to seminars, listen to podcasts, share your struggles in community, go see a counselor, do what you need to do to care for this relationship that God has given you. But I promise you, if you take this idea of God using you for his purposes, you take this idea of not holding too tightly to things that are temporary and investing in eternity, it will start to shift the culture of your marriage. You take those ideas, it'll start to shift the content of your life. And Father in heaven, I think more than anything, I am so aware of how simple that is. And just in all honesty, how often I mess it up. How often I get overly focused on things that don't really matter. How often I drift towards selfishness. God, my guess is I'm not the only one in the room that feels that way, married or single. It's so easy to make it all about us. Yet nothing good ever comes from that, Lord. And we should know that because you came in the form of a servant 
not to be served, but to serve. Not to conquer and dominate, but to lay down your very life as a gift for the world. Jesus, in the most loving way possible, would you help us to get over ourselves, to run after you, and to trust that as we do that, you would not only meet us, but begin to heal some of the wounds in our lives. Heal the wounds in our marriages, our friendships, in our families, in our workplaces. God, we need you. So even as we sing this last song, would you be at work in our hearts? We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.